The theme for the uh, evening talk is freedom through non-grasping. I remember uh, years ago when I first took uh, ordination as a as a monk in Thailand. Turn around this a bit, that's it, Mike. And I was in my mid twenties uh, uh, at the time. And in the Thai Theravada tradition, one begins with uh, uh, novice uh, ordination, shaved head, robe, uh, um, basic requisites, uh, etc., and ten precepts to observe. And then the following on step from that is to fully, full ordination as a, a monk with uh, some 227 uh, precepts uh, to observe. And one of the uh, things which was noticeable and which the, the abbot, Ajahn Tamadro, never tired of uh, reminding us, that if we are serious about our meditation in sitting, walking, standing and uh, reclining and keep that focused as our priority through the day, then all the uh, precepts and all the guidelines are all taken care of just by sitting, walking, standing and reclining. And in the way of things of uh, the, the East and particularly in the, the Buddhist monast- monasteries, there's a different kind of uh, sense or view about uh, what time is. And whereas we in the West have a great love of precision and, uh, uh, and things happening at a certain time, their numbers and reality don't have too much relationship uh, and this is especially apparent in living in uh, a, a monastery and it made one extraordinarily aware of the tendency of the mind to uh, grasp and what happens when we grasp and in the uh, evening pro- program which uh, took place every evening in this uh, monastery that at seven o'clock the gong in the monastery would ring throughout the, the, the monastery. In fact, the, the gong, incidentally, was um, an empty bomb which had fallen out of the back of a, a B-52 bomber and didn't explode. And so they took out all the explosives and left the empty shell and thought it would make a nice gong for the monastery. <laughs> so in the evening, the gong at seven o'clock would be uh, rung throughout the uh, monastery. And then the Ajahn, the Vipassana teacher, Ajahn Damodaro, would be due to come in at 8 p.m., an hour later, after the hour sitting, and give the evening talk. And this went on seven days uh, a week. 365 days uh, uh, a year and sometimes uh, we'd be sitting there and and unlike the kind of uh, dare I say uh, bourgeois comfort that we use uh, here with these nice thick mats and then uh, nice thick zafu thick uh, cushions and then a couple of extra cushions and uh, a little bit of back support and yeah, the chair, and we'd have an armchair if we could get it in here. 
etc. Um, in the monastery, what one had was uh, a wooden floor. On top of the wooden floor was a, a bamboo mat, and one sat on the bamboo mat. And it was for those who've been ordained for some years, you had this piece of square carpet, just like what you walk on in the uh, the door to the entrance of the Dharma Hall uh, here. So we'd uh, sit there, and the number of times sitting in that wooden uh, hall, and one could hear the abbot just over the, on the other side of the meditation hall talking to visitors. And there was a clock in the hall, I always remember the clock, and when it was very silent you could hear this slow tick-tock. <laughs> of the clock as we waited for the abbot and in that there were, must be sometimes up to a hundred uh, monks and novices uh, more than a hundred uh, 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 nuns aged from eight or nine to eighteen, ninety, etc and uh, uh, lay people would just be sitting there uh, waiting and when you're sitting in uh, the humidity of uh, uh, southern Thailand and you've got a shaved head, and it's a hot, sticky monsoon night, and your head's shaved, and you're sitting there and you're thinking, every damn mosquito in this country has found its way to the top of my head. <laughs> and it, one feels one's being sucked dry, waiting for the uh, uh, abbot to stop giggling in the... In the conversation he's having with the lay people uh, uh, behind. This, this went on and sometimes he'd turn up at 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock and 9.30, uh, etc. I remember on, on some occasions, I think it's always a good reminder for new teachers here, some occasions he'd, he'd just send a message and then I'd be, uh, my name was Kitty Supo, and, uh, which actually translates, I know it's all ironic, it actually translates as beautiful reputation. <laughs> the least I say about that. Uh, and, and so just be sitting there, you know, uh, waiting and feeling rather grumpy and saying, look, I'm tired and, I'm, and my body aches and my knees ache and my back ache and I just want to go to bed and come on in and start and finish, please. And, and then he'd send a message in and sometimes the, the novice would come in and then the novice would say, oh, Ajahn says, uh, uh, Kitty Supo, actually, um, he wants you to speak to the monastery on the six types of feelings. You know, <laughs> I don't even know what the six types really are. And then the, 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 the old monks who are half dead sitting in the front row <laughs> would turn around and they'd go, oh. <laughs> and I'm you know, trying to find out what the six types of feeling are to talk about, <laughs> etc. And then one would have to go up and then start waffling. <laughs> it's been a 30-year training, I mentioned this the other night. 
I've just done it for the last ten minutes, there's only half hour to go. <laughs> so sometimes, you see, here's the inner life which is going on and man- manifesting its, uh, I- itself. And th- those years in the monastery uh, and being the only, uh, first couple of years, the only European uh, in, in the place and being a typ- typical Englishman who couldn't speak anything else and so just sometimes waiting for someone to turn up who could speak a bit of uh, English, so perhaps a, a Thai monk or an Indian monk or a Malaysian monk, so to get some translation, and, and this is how the years uh, went by there. <laughs> and some of you will think, yes, it shows, Christopher. <laughs> So sometimes in, in situations in life and the whole range and variety of situations that we find ourselves in uh, and all the kind of choices that we make which uh, bring us uh, into them. There's the inner life which is going on and the mind in its movement and its activity easily reaches out and it easily grasps. It grasps. And uh, in that grasping there's a leaning towards there's a reliance upon, there's a dependency uh, upon, and the whole welfare, in fact, of the inner life, then, in its terms of its contentment and inner peace, is acutely susceptible and acutely vulnerable to what one has come to rely or depend upon. And sometimes those uh, periods of time just... uh, using that small example from years ago, 30 years ago now, of that uh, reliance and dependency and the grasping that uh, was going on in terms of wanting something to be in a particular way for oneself at a particular time. To the degree that one grasped onto that would be the the degree that there would be agitation. Of, of, of restlessness, of um, uh, frustration. That is, wanting something from the world that we uh, live in and expecting and, and putting uh, inner pressure, sometimes outer pressure as well, of course, on securing what we want uh, and therefore thinking that the grasping and getting what I want the main reason behind that is to get some peace of mind. The quest for the peace of mind by coming through the means, or trying to secure it through the means of the world fitting in with the inner movement. And every situation, and that was just one that I referred to, in a way became a a challenge and a test and an opportunity if one doesn't grasp, inner peace will stay. If one grasps, it's lost. And sometimes it was that plain and that clear and that simple. The, the event of whether a person came, in this case at 8pm or 8.30 or 9 or 9.30, whether sometimes he would speak for 10 minutes and one was fired up for much longer and then we're, or 40 minutes, and sometimes one night it went till 12.30 to 1 o'clock, going on and on and on, and completely oblivious that half the monastery was asleep, <laughs> that he had something to talk about, and 
and we were expected to listen. So the movement that's going on, as I say, within, easily the grasping can take place uh, from that, and sometimes, as uh, the Buddha said on a number of occasions, freedom, liberation, is through non-grasping. Is through non-grasping. And if we allow ourselves to take such a simple, basic, if we allow ourselves, say, to consider that in terms of being a kind of penultimate communication of what the heart of the teaching is all about, the essence of the teaching, what it is uh, all about, liberation, which is called enlightenment, which is called freedom, which is called being with the nature of things, however we work with to describe, through, that means the vehicle, the instrument, through non-grasping. And if we were just to take that and to make that a, a real theme in our experience and in our uh, daily life, it will alter the whole inner workings of our uh, experience. It would change things for us. It, we would relate to time and people and circumstances because we've just taken one simple bare-bones truth of exist- existence that grasping leads to problems and non-grasping stops them. Sometimes it is a little difficult to hear and uh, to, uh, to sense uh, such a, a kind of uh, a practice uh, uh, there. But, and sometimes it can seem to some people that it could, as it were, through non-grasping, block love, block uh, appreciation, block profound connectedness, because the, the very grasping onto things uh, 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 themselves that sometimes we feel we need to grasp onto life. We need to grasp onto our circumstances, our possessions, our friends, our practice, or whatever it, whatever it may be. But surely each one of us only has to reflect a little bit and say to ourselves and ask ourselves as clearly and as well as we can in life, what has happened for us? where we've experienced holding, clinging and grasping. What has gone on for us? And if we just to, to pick out two or three situations related to the past or related to how we want the future to be or related to what's going on in the present, we keep coming up again and again, I would say, with some feeling of how unsatisfactory it is to cling on to anything to cling on to anyone, to cling on to uh, any view, any pleasure, any aspect or uh, feature of existence, including all that goes on in heart, mind and body. That in a deeper looking at things, none of it whatsoever is worth clinging to. None of it. Sometimes we hardly realise uh, how quickly and how easily the holding or the uh, 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 clinging can, uh, can take place 
or just how the mind has got uh, used, used to something and associated with it and in that connection uh, uh, with it hasn't realised other feelings and thoughts and, uh, and forms of holding uh, beginning to creep in. And sometimes it's quite a, a shock for us when we uh, uh, notice it and the vigilance that, that's required. And the example that I, uh, I've got in mind, I remember some uh, time ago, not an unusual uh, situation for those of you who have uh, been in Mother India, of, uh, of travelling uh, on the train. And uh, train journeys in uh, uh, India, for those of you who haven't had such a questionable privilege, um, are a little different from getting the train tomorrow at Newton Abbott. Um, they're not always given, <laughs> given British Railways, but uh, and so sometimes in, in India one has to be a little bit extra vigilant and vigilant when one gets on the train because one may get on the train with some possessions only to find that getting on the train there's been a separation of oneself from one's possessions and uh, or going to sleep at night and waking up in the, in the morning and finding that one's got less weight to carry as one gets off the train because someone's been very thoughtful and freed one from it or uh, whatever it might be and I remember some time ago with re- regard to that that many, and I'm included wearing the pouch around the neck and um, uh, sticking it in one's underpants to keep the lower part of the anatomy warmer so it wouldn't disappear during the night because that's been known as, as well there are things in this world called scissors and, and I remember you know, just going to, going to bed, getting the cus- in a second class AC sleeper, being provided with the, the dirty old sheet that's been used <laughs> since 1907, and, and, uh, and the blanket, and lying down on, on there, and night, the train rumbling through in India through the night, and waking up in the morning, and almost with um, ritual enthusiasm going oh my god pouch, it's gone and uh, putting the hand on the body and oh my god the pouch and inside there's a passport and the, and the, and the traveller's checks, not much in my case and um, an airline ticket and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the wretched visa card and, and oh my god, oh my god and feeling, as others have reported as, as well, a kind of certain kind of hot sweat <laughs> emerging mysteriously out of the armpits <laughs> at the thought that this little pouch had suddenly dis- disappeared and then suddenly going, duh, duh, duh. and what had happened during the night that the pouch had moved its way around the back of the neck <laughs> and it's actually hanging down the back <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes, as I say, one, just in the course of time, through connection, through contact, one giving all these wonderful dharma talks, well, I'm not attached to the passport, <laughs> or whatever, all of these, and don't cling to your possessions, uh, etc. And one just takes a small incident in life. This is the point here. Small incident in life. 
where something just shows, whoa, building up was taking place, some holding was taking place, but with practice and with the, with the vigilance, one sees it immediately. That's the important thing here. One notice, notices that uh, arising uh, uh, in, in the moment. And in that sees it rise, sees it fall, that means the feeling, the sensation, the thought arise and uh, come and go, and hopefully with uh, humour as, as well in certain situations. And so that one is once again, the important thing, recovered and knows what freedom is through non-grasping. That's the important thing. That where there is uh, wisdom, where there's been a genuine, deep and ongoing love of a life of free from uh, grasping, when it does pick up, when we do notice it in, our, in, in, our, in ourselves, all the responses will, will turn to it. All the wisdom, all the dharma that we've, that we've absorbed will go straight there to attend to that grasping. So that the mind can return quickly, easily, contentedly to its true original nature which is free from grasping and therefore content. In the looking into ourselves and in the uh, exploration uh, of, of ourselves, grasping has a relationship. It can't exist in and of itself. It exists in relationship to something. Therefore, there are three features which go on with us. There is the grasping, there is the grasper, the one who grasps, and there is that which is grasped, that which is clung to, that which is held on to. It could be self, it could be views and opinions, it could be the field of uh, uh, pleasure. It could be manifesting in terms of clinging to practices, methods, techniques, forms, rituals, all of that. So we're now looking into ourselves and seeing here's the self arising as the grasper. It's manifesting in some expression called grasping and there's that which is grasped onto. And any situation in life can be a trigger for this. So when we speak in Dharma language of what is called Atma Vidya, Atma means self, Vidya means knowing of self, small s obviously here, we could re-look at that and say self manifests easily and has its substance in what is grasped onto. We think of situations in our life where our self has been most difficult and most troubled and most uh, confused or conflict or the strength of self has been strongest. One of the features that we know about it is that the self is in the form of the grasper and that which is grasped onto. And therefore the sense of I, me and my is at its most intense. So the Atma Vidya, the knowing of ourselves, is the capacity to bring awareness and to ask ourselves, what 
do I most easily and frequently grasp onto? What, what, where's the strongest area of grasping in my life, or a- areas? Is it about past experience? These are open questions, obviously. Is it about health issues? Is it about relationship with uh, friends or partner or, or relatives? Is it around one's uh, roles and uh, identity? So where we see the most difficulty in life and, and in fact the most anguish and difficulty and problem which is going on for us, putting it in a Dharma language, we're saying, here we're seeing the most grasping. Here we're seeing the most clinging. And there may be times, and perhaps in the most difficult moments and times during the days of of the retreat where we felt the most difficulty, whatever, looking at it again in a fresh way, say, well, what was the grasping going on here? What was the, the clinging which is going on here? And that kind of practice of attending to that is a, a, a practice to make us free. And we might say, well, and this is one of the concerns that sometimes that we have, well, if I don't grasp onto anything, I'll become detached. I'll become uh, alienated. But in fact, in the dissolution of grasping comes about much more sense of natural connection. Wisdom and clarity then begin to replace the grasping. It's an important teaching and an important um, uh, practice uh, for us. And perhaps the significance of its importance is in a way, as the tradition has uh, said again and again, is, is because of death. Perhaps more than many things, but certainly uh, uh, death itself can be such a, a helpful and supportive reminder to us of this uh, statement of the Buddha, Sabe Dharma Nalanga Vinasaya. There's nothing, no Dharma, nothing at all is worth clinging onto. Nothing at all is worth grasping onto. And so, in finding a freedom in life and a real uh, freedom in, in, in life, it's that sometimes awareness and acknowledgement, not with fear, but a simple bare actuality that death is never far away, is one of the most strongest teachings for any human being to be free from grasping. Perhaps more than any, any single uh, reminder to any one of us. Remember, just this year in uh, uh, in uh, India, and we have the uh, Sarnath uh, uh, program, and uh, Martin and I and uh, other uh, friends. Some of you were there as as well, and took a day uh, off and went into Varanasi, and this is. Uh, main religious town of uh, uh, India, just as well known for having uh, more than 40,000 rickshaws. And on that point, by the way, (laughs) 
Every, everything, everything has a story in India. <laughs> and um, we had a guy in a retreat from L.A. And wherever he went, he kept on hearing his name being called. And his poor karma in life was to be called Rick Shaw. <laughs> Hello, Rick Shaw. Anyway, no, sir. So, <laughs> so uh, Nina and I, we went along for, as many do, for a walk along the, uh, on, the Gange, on the Ganges. And down further past Lassie Gap, there's the, uh, the Burning Gap. So, within a day of, of the death of a person, uh, uh, taken to uh, the fire, and and sometimes it's almost within hours of the death, very, very uh, uh, quickly there's a cremation, and that the family come, and the corpse, often wrapped in cloth or in, in silk, and is uh, placed on the wooden funeral uh, pyre there, and the Brahmin priest comes, he circambulates the, uh, uh, the wood and, and the, the, the corpse, and sprinkles the holy water, and does the final death chant and marking uh, the, the deceased uh, person's presence and absence in this world and, and in the tradition of the consciousness uh, taking fresh birth. And we went down there to uh, watch this and witness this as a number of others uh, of you have. And the person who was being cremated was very young woman, I would think maybe 19, 20, 21 uh, years of uh, age, uh, face very clearly, clearly visible. And clearly because she had only just uh, 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 died, still had a kind of young and fresh look about her. And of course the family was there, and brothers, and she was married. Uh, her husband and certainly the parents were, were, were there and, and, and friends. And as I my friend just uh, uh, watched from the vantage point, uh, not, not from the balcony, not far away, first of those in my mind, as I'm sure it would in many, many people's minds, what, what on earth happened to this young woman? What on earth happened to her? And after some 15 or 20 minutes, just quietly watched and observed uh, that uh, cremation take, taking place. And then with the burning, just gradually, gradually, the whole body just gone. And one thought, my goodness me, perhaps just a few hours ago, perhaps the day before. What, how was she? Was it a road accident? She was walking along the street? Was it in, was it in birth? Was, Far too many women die in uh, India. Was it some? What, what, what was it? What, 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 what happened? Was it a, a, a stroke? What, what happened? And I, I don't, I don't know. The family would, would know. But what one does know that she was alive the previous day, and she was gone. And all the cause of the grief that arises for for friends and family and lo- and, lo- and loved ones. And and I think those. Observations and experiences and things that we know and read and uh, uh, witness in life are a real reminder to us of a very important uh, 
uh, message of freedom from through non-grasping. And no, no, no matter what we might concern ourselves with in terms of the end of life, or if there is something after life, or what might happen after life, or nothing happens after life, one thing we do know, and that is, whatever is here cannot travel with us. Whatever we know and experience in our world, to our sights and sounds, whatever accumulations and possessions that we have had, whatever thoughts, or whatever it might be, we can't just take them with us. All is left behind. So sometimes, and I don't think it's a morbid teaching, nor a morbid thought uh, here, uh, in, in any way, but it's uh, an endeavour, not a, an easy one, admittedly, but it's an endeavour for each one of us to try to be as honest and as true to the face of existence. And the face of existence, therefore, including as our years uh, pass by and the passage of them, to include and see the mutual support, this is important here, the mutual support of death has with life. They're inseparably uh, related there. And sometimes, in that inseparableness of the relationship there, it is genuinely worth generating some awareness and giving attention to. And this contemplation, this specific meditation, the contemplation of life with death or birth with death, beginnings with endings, arisings with passings, has been an extraordinarily distinctive feature throughout the whole tradition. And in, in, that, distinct, in that distinctive uh, feature uh, that takes place within the, the tradition, would we dare, as it were, place in the front of awareness as well and as clearly as we can both life and death together, could it be possible in that bringing awareness to endings, to finishings, to extinction, to finalizing, to death, death in every moment, we might say, death of every experience, the ending of every retreat, the ending of every hour, the ending of every experience, the ending of every situation, the ending of every stream of thought, the ending of uh, existence, the ending of the day, that that we make that such a contemplation in life and such a meditation that it's a kind of, another kind of training to be able to bring awareness in such a way that we can say, here is life, I'm not afraid of it. Here is death, I'm not afraid of it. And to bring those two formidable presences, one known and one unknown, right into the field of awareness, a real sense of what that means. Maybe we'll take the sting out of the death. Maybe we'll take the fear out of the death. Maybe we'll take, for those who fear life and long for death, take the longing out and the grasping after death as a way out. Maybe that the difference between uh, life and death is not that great. Sometimes, in, in the, the Buddhist world, perhaps more so than uh, um, um, many, um, many others, 
Um, well, it's found in the Christian tradition uh, as, uh, as, as well. And Buddhist world, and, and certainly, if I may say, with um, monks and nuns' life in the, in the monasteries, this is in the Theravada uh, tradition, has, not always of course, a fairly uh, relaxed view of uh, life and death. Sometimes in the monasteries it's not imparted as being the great terror that human beings are afraid of so, of, of so much. It, it, one gets so used in the disciplines and the practices and a way of practicing a way of life, a freedom from grasping, that just seeing all is in process. And therefore, even life and death is in process. It's in, in process. And I, mean, I re- remember when I went back to the monastery to uh, pay respects to the teacher, to Ajahn Dhammadara. And I arrived in the uh, monastery and in a chair sitting in the sunshine was a monk and looking rather stiff. And as I walked past to go to the abbot's hut, I looked across and the, the, the first thought that arose in my mind was, you don't look very well at all. And it turned out to be a monk that I'd known who had died a year or two before. And in very kind of Theravada monk style, he said, he was a very, actually very sweet as a saint. He said, I haven't been any good to anybody in my entire existence. This is you know, kind of selfless things that some of these monks would like to say. Nobody believes them. <laughs> so I haven't been any good my, to anybody in my entire existence. So he said, rather than burn me, he said, I'll make a much better teacher dead. So that's what happened. And regularly the they give him the injection of formalin to stop him uh, thinking <laughs> and carried him out from the hut daily and put him in a chair. <laughs> it was a bit hard to get him into the cross-legged posture. <laughs> and he just sit there, unusually still. <laughs> and monks would do their practice and he'd be there teaching. And when the body got tighter, more stiff, and the flesh got tight around uh, 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 there, the the monks then would get some furniture polish. (laughs) Really. And polish him. (laughs) So the skin looked nice and shiny, you know. Like we do in the West on a Sunday morning with our new cars. <laughs> so kind of have to look after the sort of thing. I told this once to my mother. <laughs> she said, "Sick." 
slightly different view in the West of these things, I have to say. <laughs> so sometimes, as I say, sometimes there's a field of awareness here that's reminding us nothing is worth grasping onto, nothing is worth clinging onto, and the reason nothing is worth grasping or clinging onto is due to change. Due to whatever you and I have contact with this world, including the whole process of what we call our existence, as well as what is uh, around us, belongs to an extraordinary unfolding dynamic. Sometimes it's present and in our consciousness, Sometimes it's in our consciousness in a clear way, sometimes it's in an uncomfortable way or whatever. It requires our attention, it requires our wisdom and our exploration. And no matter what the degree of wisdom and exploration, nevertheless, we cannot keep. We cannot own, we cannot possess. We cannot keep our hands on our eyes, on our ears, on or whatever it might be. And the sense of that, the appreciation, perhaps the realization of that, hopefully will free us up so that we live in a way of the world which we're uh, free in this world and especially free from grasping and clinging to anything, anywhere whatsoever. Nothing in this whole universe can cling to itself. Nothing can hold on to itself. And if we get the sense, this is the way things are. We haven't decided this, you and I didn't make up our mind that this is how it is. But being how it is in the nature, and therefore being close and connected with the nature, surely we can live true to it, and true to it means that nothing can cling unto itself, nor cling to anything else. And in our world and in our environment, with all the variety of changes and all the information that's being made to us again and again, it's only a, another reminder with every uncertainty that this world knows that once again life is discoverable and understandable and can be accommodated through non clinging. Extraordinary teaching, an extraordinary uh, uh, message. And if we just took that to heart, respectfully, not through withdrawal, not through denial, not through rejection in any way, but just took it to heart, the wisdom of non-clinging, that itself, without anything else, would be extraordinary for illuminating our life into finding a genuine depth of inner peace in life, because we just understood the importance of one thing, and from that, love will flow. Love without clinging. Connections will flow. Respect will flow. Sense of deep um, magical harmony will be an outcome. May all beings with awareness May all beings understand the unfolding process of things. May all beings abide with a non-clinging joy.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.